Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23 as we continue working through Matthew's 13th chapter. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's on page 818. Being late was harder without cell phones. For some of you, you'll remember things like this. Others, you all explain it along the way. Picture yourself in this scenario. You and a friend set up a time to meet. You get there five minutes early because you're punctual, and yeah, you're a little proud of that. So when your friend gets there not five minutes early, that's okay. But then the agreed-upon meeting time passes. And you look at your watch. Ten minutes goes by. Twenty minutes goes by. Thirty minutes goes by. At this point, you get a little concerned. And that concern can be wide-ranging from your friend got into an accident, they forgot, or maybe you just messed up. Then you need to make a decision. How long is long enough to assume that your friend is not coming? How much delay signals that it's just not happening today? This idea of delay versus something not happening is actually something that goes deep into our culture. It even affects our sense of justice. So the phrase, justice delayed is justice denied, is a part of the cultural history of our country. And in fact, it's not just in our culture in the Bible, 2 Peter picks up this argument as talking about does the delay of Christ and his return mean that he's not actually returning? Let me read to you from 2 Peter. It's 2 Peter chapter 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." I want to take that passage in 2 Peter and that idea of justice delayed is justice denied. Because that phrase can be very true in our criminal justice system and any criminal justice system on this earth. But what Peter makes clear there is that it is not true in God's justice system. Just because Jesus has not yet returned does not mean that he's never returning. And just because the justice of Jesus is delayed does not mean that his justice is denied. 
And that idea is at the center of our text today. That while Jesus, while it may seem to us that he is delayed, he will return and he will bring his justice with him. So with that in mind, let's turn to our text. Like with last week, we're going to have a parable at the beginning of the passage and an explanation later. So in this first part, I'm simply going to be reading the parable as it is in verses 24 to 30, because the explanation is later. Now again, like last week, we've got to hop over a couple other things to get to the explanation, but we'll take those each in turn. So let's go 24 to 30, follow along as I read. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat among with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now we're going to come back to that, and we're also going to be, like last week, trusting the arrangement of the Bible. That God, when he inspired the writers of the scriptures, he not only was inspiring what they wrote, but the order in which we, he wrote it. And so it will be strange, again, another week, that why doesn't Jesus put his explanation right next to his telling of the story? But we're going to trust what God was doing, that he knew what he was doing in writing his word. And interestingly, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, before he explains the larger parable, he actually has these mini parables of Jesus in the next section. So let's look at those as we look at two mini parables about small beginnings. Let's first look at verses 31 to 32. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Before we hop into the details of this passage, I think it is good to pause here and note this these many parables and the ones we just did and the one we saw last week, I want us to appreciate how Jesus uses the natural world around us to understand spiritual truth. This is one aspect of the idea in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. Jesus used what was around, what was familiar, what people could see and touch to explain the kingdom of heaven. 
And so to help us understand his kingdom, Jesus here has a picture of a man planting a mustard seed. Now what you need to know about mustard seed is right in the text. It is the smallest of all seeds. But here's else what you also need to know about mustard seeds. When it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. In fact, it's such a large plant that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. In one sense, it's a very simple comparison. The small seed turns into a big plant. Just because the kingdom starts small doesn't mean it will not grow large. Don't despise the kingdom of God if it starts small. And you can see how this would be particularly towards the people who could see Jesus. The first eyewitnesses, and they may have looked at Jesus and be like, you know, you don't look that special. And you don't have a ton of followers. So Jesus is telling them and us, don't despise the kingdom of God if it has small beginnings. Just because you're not impressed with the number of Jesus' followers, don't deny that he's bringing about the kingdom of God. Think about it this way. Using the numbers we have recorded of the early church. Acts chapter 1 verse 15, recorded after the ascension of Jesus. Luke tells us that 120 people were in a room representing the early followers of Jesus. And using this number as a baseline, you might be tempted to say that Jesus failed because at the end of his life, he only had 120 followers. Jesus would be terrible at social media. But when we look through history, we see a story of those 120 people turning into hundreds of millions, if not billions of people over 2,000 years and in countries across the world. Just because God's work in his world has modest beginnings doesn't mean it will have modest ends. It is easy to feel small in this world. It is easy to feel that my work, my service is insignificant because I'm just a normal person. But what this parable tells us is that we have no idea the reverberations that our work for Jesus does. That God uses the normal. God uses the small. God uses them to accomplish his mission. And over the years and over the countries, God's word spreads because God is the one at work. The other thing I want to note here is this imagery of the birds really completes the picture. Interestingly, the idea of God's people and being a plant in which birds come in pops up quite a few times in your Old Testament. Places like Ezekiel 17 or Daniel chapter 4. 
And it's one way to talk about a kingdom as a place for the nations. While God's kingdom begins small, brought about by Jesus and those 120 people, it grows into a mighty kingdom offering salvation, rest, and joy to the nations. Even when you feel small, don't underestimate the kingdom of God because God is at work. Leads to the next parable, which has a similar message. Let's look at verse 33. So we move from seeds to leaven or yeast. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Again, Jesus can both give large parables and very short parables. <laughs> Here, the important question is not necessarily growth, but proportions. I, I don't do a ton of baking, and, and I didn't do a ton growing up, so I actually do remember the first time I had to go to the store to buy yeast packets. And I do remember thinking to myself, how little amount is in those little packets? You pick it up, you're like, is anything in there? Are they selling me air? It's, just, it is a, it's probably a scam. Uh, well, it's because you don't, you don't need a lot, even with a lot of flour. We see this, that in this mini parable, the leaven is put into three measures of flour. Now, what's a measure of flour? I'm glad you asked. Three measures of flour in modern measurements would be, would be about 22 liters. So I think 11 two-liter bottles a pop. Another helpful way to think about this in that culture, one, one author tells us, is that it probably represents the largest amount of flour a woman might make up into bread at one time. I think that last one's helpful because I think it helps us to see what Jesus' original audience would have heard. They would have pictured their mom, their grandma, or other relatives taking out this large amount of flour to make bread. They could picture that. And understanding that just a little bit of leaven spreads through all that flour. Again, there's a lot of similarities between these two mini parables. But to help us distinguish it, one author helpfully writes this. If there is a distinction between this parable and the last one, it is that the mustard seeds suggest extensive growth and the yeast intensive transformation. The yeast doesn't grow, it permeates. And its inevitable effect, despite the small quantity used, in both parables it is clear that at the present, the kingdom of heaven operates quickly and from small, quietly, excuse me, quietly and from small beginnings. While God's kingdom may seem small, especially at its beginning, it permeates everything, transforming our lives and our communities because it is God's kingdom. Now, Matthew, here at this point in the text, sort of comes back to an idea we've seen before. And he records what Jesus said when asked, why does he speak in parables? 
Now, what's interesting about this is that Jesus does not give the same answer that he did in the last chapter when he was asked, why do you speak in miracles? And so it's helpful for us to see that there are multiple uses of parables and why Jesus used them. So let's look at verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. We saw back in Matthew 13, 10 to 17, we saw Jesus speak to this issue as why he used parables. And the reason there he gave, generally speaking, was to conceal the truth from those who had rejected him. And Jesus saw this as a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 6. And in this part of the passage, there are some similarities and some differences there. The similarity is that Jesus sees the use of parables as a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And the quotation here is from Psalm 78. But as we'll see in a second, the reason given here is quite different. Now, in case there's any confusion, you might be confused of why does he say from the prophet, but then quotes from the book of Psalms? Thanks for asking that question. This is not a typo. But just to give you an example of how sometimes different categories are used for the Old Testament, what we might call the historical book, so Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings, in Judaism, can be referred to as the former prophets, whereas ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah are referred to as the latter prophets. Or, as you see in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus can refer to the whole Old Testament as the law and the prophets. So that's why it's okay that Jesus refers to the prophet when referring to a writer of the psalm. So let's look at that quotation to see why Jesus is using parables. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Notice there are two lines quoted, and like much of the book of Psalms and Proverbs, those two lines are in parable, meaning that their literary relationship helps one to interpret the other and vice versa. So notice both mention speaking. I will open my mouth. I will utter. In the first one, he speaks in parables. And the corresponding part of the next line is, what has been hidden since the foundation of the world? Now, this is one of the ways that the Bible talks about the truth of the gospel being revealed in Jesus. All of the hints and promises made in the Old Testament finally come together in their clear fulfillment in Jesus. We see this in a place like the book of Colossians, where Paul speaks of the good news of Jesus as, quote, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Parables are a sign that Jesus is revealing what has been hidden. The parables are a sign that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Admittedly, some of these promises don't always, didn't always make sense unless you understand they're fulfilled in Christ. 
And this idea is supported by the fact that Jesus quotes from Psalm 78. This is where the psalm itself is helpful to us. One of the central features of Psalm 78 is that it is a historical psalm. It draws from various parts of Israel's history to make its point. And we can see that Jesus is doing something similar. He uses parables to show that all of history and all the promises of Israel, while seeming to be disconnected from each other, all find their fulfillment in Jesus. One of the commentators helps us here when he writes, Yet they are secret and new chiefly because they depend on an approach to Scripture not unlike the psalmist, bringing together various pieces of previous revelation into new perspectives. Author continues on, Thus, the Messiah is the son of David, but also the suffering servant. Jesus is the royal king and son of David foreseen in Scripture, but also the stricken shepherd equally foreseen in Scripture, who clearly foresaw that both streams would merge in one person. Jesus is telling his original audience and us to see his use of parables as a sign that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. It is a sign that Jesus will show them like Asaph in Psalm 78, the point of the Old Testament history. The mere use of parables point to the fact that Jesus is the promised Savior sent to save his people from their sins. And it's at this point in the passage that we finally come back to that first parable. Again, this is one of the great parts of the Gospels, that there are times where Jesus says things and then later explains what they mean. We should feel a kindred spirit with the disciples who were also confused by things that Jesus said. Can we use that to appreciate the normalness of even the original disciples? Like, they weren't super Christians. They weren't, like, given an extra dose of the Holy Spirit. They were normal people, and they got confused, and they had to go up and ask Jesus later, what are you talking about, Jesus? So let's look at his explanation beginning in verse 36. So in verses 36 to 39, Jesus is going to explain who the characters are in the story. Let's look at that. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. So Matthew tells us Jesus leaves the crowds and enters a house. And in the house, the disciples say to him, Hey, explain to us what you were talking about earlier. And in those following verses, Jesus explains the characters of the parable. The person sowing the good seed is Jesus. Again, just by way of explanation, when Jesus uses the title of Son of Man, that's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. The field is the world. 
And the grain that grows up from good seed is described as the sons of the kingdom. In this context, that is Jesus' way of referring to those who follow him by faith. They are citizens of God's kingdom through faith in Jesus. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. This is one way that Jesus can talk about unbelievers. To not follow Jesus is to follow the devil, who is pictured as the enemy who secretly planted weeds. Jesus uses this language throughout the Gospels. One one place in particular is John 8, where Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from you and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Back in that culture, the language of being a son was used to talk about following. To help you understand that, think about how in the olden days, sons would almost exclusively have the same occupation as their father. And it's that idea where in here the unbelievers are called the sons of the devil. It's this idea of who do you follow, Jesus or the devil? And finally, Jesus explains that the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. This is another common picture in the Bible that God's judgment at the end of time is compared to a harvest. You can see another example of that in Revelation chapter 14. And so in those last verses, verses 40 to 43, Jesus helps his disciples, now that they know who the characters are, to understand why he told this parable. 40 to 43. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus creates an analogy between the story where the weeds are gathered and burned with fire with the final judgment, so it will be at the end of the age. Jesus will send his angels to execute justice, and they will bring God's justice against all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Even though justice is delayed, Jesus is telling us that all sin and all sinners will be fully and completely judged. They will be thrown into a fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Rejection of Jesus leads to the judgment of hell, a place described with fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a place of sorrow and dread. The wicked and the unrighteous will be brought to justice. It is a somber truth, but it is a clear truth. But in contrast, those who have placed their faith in Jesus, those who belong to God and his kingdom, they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. 
In contrast to eternal punishment, the destiny of God's people will be like the shining sun. Here we're, we're helped by our own climate. We know what it is like to go for so long without full sunlight. The picture here is our eternal hope in Christ is like when you step out on that warm, sunny day after weeks of dreary and cold weather. The peace and joy that you experience in that warm sunlight is the peace and joy that we will have in the kingdom of our Father. Even though God's justice is delayed, it will happen. Those who have rejected Christ will face his justice. And those who have trusted in Christ will experience the glory of eternal life. Jesus ends with a phrase we've seen before. He said, He who has ears, let him hear. Matthew is using Jesus' words to invite us into the same choice that was before the people of Jesus' day. In light of this truth, what will you do? Will you follow Jesus or will you reject him? If you reject him, you will face the righteous judgment of God. But if you hear his words and accept them by faith, you will experience the eternal blessing of God. A couple thoughts as we close up. Number one, don't despise small beginnings. Jesus' ministry began small and normal. But as so often throughout history, God uses the small to shame the great. God works through ordinary people like you and me to grow his kingdom. Even though Jesus' ministry began small, because it is God's kingdom, that small beginning grew into a people spanning thousands of years in countries across the world. Secondly, in Jesus, all is revealed. Jesus told parables as a sign that all of the stories and of all the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in him. The parables help us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, that he kept his promise to send a Savior, and that Savior was Jesus. Thirdly, while judgment is delayed, judgment is certain. In this world, you might have to wait for justice. In this world, you may never get the justice you seek. But even though God's judgment is delayed, his judgment is certain. God will punish all wickedness and wrongdoing. All wrongs will be made right. And a part of our hope in Christ is trusting that his justice will be done. Fourth, for those who are in Christ, we will not experience judgment, but rather glory. 
There's more to the story than the judgment of the wicked. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you will not experience judgment. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you will experience the glory of the forgiveness of sins, being reconciled to God, and having the hope of eternal life. Instead of weeping and gnashing of teeth, you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. But as we hear that word, as we hear that promise of blessing, it is good for us to remember that this message is not just for us here. This is a message we are to take out into the field, God's world. We have a message that no one else has. A message that forgiveness is possible and the glory of eternal life can be had. We are to go out into that field with the good news of Jesus that through faith in him you can be saved from your sins and reconciled to the God of the universe. And we go because it is God's field. And he has called us to proclaim that those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, but the glory of eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning, that we would trust in your return We would trust that justice will be done. That we would trust the promise of eternal life to those who believe in Jesus Christ. That we would take this message into your field, into your world. Because we have the hope of eternal life and we know that all wrong will face justice one day. That we would go with confidence to those who do not yet know you. And that we would proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.